Tonight we are beginning a new series, as has been mentioned, it's a preaching workshop series. And over the next Sunday evenings, we're going to be looking at at Revelation, and specifically the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And as has been mentioned, and as Richard mentioned this morning, the theme for this series is You've Got Mail. Now, has anybody seen this Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan movie? I want to date you all here. Yes. Quite a few. Well, that's not relevant at all. <laughs> what, what, what is relevant is the fact of getting mail, and I'm sure if you're like me, you get an awful lot of those every day. Um, Revelation was, was written by John, but was given to him directly by Jesus in a vision. And this revelation, this, this word of God and testimony of Christ was written down by John for the seven churches under his watch, the churches in the Roman province of Asia, which is now modern Turkey. And Revelation was, was a circular. It was a, a letter, a mail, if you will, to all the seven churches. So everyone could be encouraged and admonished and, and taught by it. But in Revelation 1 verse 3, it reads, anyone who reads it, hears it, and takes it to heart is blessed. So Revelation has all the churches down through the ages on CC, if you will. Revelation has us on CC. So Windsor, for the next seven weeks, you've got mail. I want to give you a bit of context to Revelation before we, we, we dive in and, and read our, uh, our passage tonight. It was written by John, most scholars will believe, and this is the same John who wrote John's Gospel. It's the same John who wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John the disciple, John one of the three, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus showed and taught maybe a little more with, his, his prayer triplet, if you will. And John was most probably the disciple whom Jesus loved in John thirteen twenty three, whom Jesus was closest to out of all of the other disciples. And Jesus loved John, and John loved Jesus. And John teaches a lot about love. We see that from his letters. We see that from, from his gospel where he shares more perhaps than any of the other gospels about Christ's nature. When, when John uh, receives and, and, and writes Revelation, he's on Patmos, which is a, a four-mile square island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And the, uh, the Romans used this island as a jail. And John is in jail because of his love for Jesus. The context of this book is worship. The revelation comes to John when he is on a Sunday morning in a state of worship. Or as chapter 1 verse 10 says, he is in the spirit. And John is a pastor but you'll see from reading Revelation that he's also a, a great poet. He is a, he is a wordsmith. He loves to use metaphor and symbol, image and, and allusion. And he does this because John is passionate about bringing us into the presence of Jesus, believing and adoring. So our prayer as a, as a preaching worship is that as we get mail over these next seven weeks, our worship of God will deepen and we will learn more about 
being the church that Jesus called us to be, a church that worships him in spirit and truth. So let's pick up tonight's mail, the section of the letter specifically addressed to the church at Ephesus, which is in Revelation 2, 1 to 7. So if you stand with me, we'll, we'll, we'll read this passage. Revelation 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and find them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Please take your seats. Now this church in Ephesus, Ephesus is the most important city in the province. And the church in Ephesus is, is at first glance pretty healthy. They were sound in doctrine and, and active in service, but the true motive of all their worship was missing. They have lost their passion, their initial love of Christ. So let's look at the text in verse 1, Jesus writes specifically to the church, to the angel of the church. And he does this, well, you'll see as we go through all seven churches. And the angel of the church, this can mean a special spiritual leader or, or spokesman for each church. Also in verse 1, Jesus introduces himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I want us to pause right at the start here because the authorship of this is critically important not only to this passage but also to all the, the, the letters to the seven churches or the letter to the seven churches. And Jesus uses words from the vision of him in Revelation 1 to describe in each of the, the sections who is giving the message. Richard made reference to that this morning and how maybe encourage some of you to, to read that section in Revelation 1 this afternoon. But we find these words in Revelation 1, 12 to 16, where we have a wonderful description of the Son of Man, where words are almost not enough to describe his majesty, where John is at pains to stretch his incredible vocabulary and his poetic capacity for description. And he's struggling to, to portray what he has seen. On down in Revelation 1.20, he, it, it does explain what is meant by this reference to the, the, the stars and, and the lampstand. He explains how the stars are the angels, the messengers are spiritual spokesmen that he holds in his hand. And the seven lampstands are the churches himself and themselves. And Christ, although he is in heaven, 
He walks amongst his churches. He is um, among the churches. And through his Holy Spirit, he also securely holds them in his hand. So keep this, this kind of vision of Christ in your mind. This vision of the glorious and risen Jesus who has power over and a presence among his churches. But let's get back to the the text, the passage tonight. At first, Jesus praises the church at Ephesus. He praises their work, their toil, their patient endurance, which is in verse 2. And false teachers had tried to come in, but they have examined their teaching and rejected them, also verse 2. And they have not grown weary, which we see in verse 3. So they're doing pretty well as a church. They perhaps should be proud of themselves. But as we read on down into verse 4, we can see that they have no reason to be proud. They have abandoned the love that they had at first, their first love, if you will. Christ is not messing about here. The verb is very strong. It's abandoned. They've been so busy with doctrine and service that they have forgotten Christ. Now, it's this idea of first love that's at the heart of everything that I want to say tonight. In a sense, this is a sermon on first love. And when I think of this first love, I'll give you a little bit of insight into my psyche here. Unfortunately, when I first think of things, quite often I think of songs like the Righteous Brothers. <laughs> You've lost that loving feeling. <laughs> or the Black Eyed Peas, Where is the Love? And I was kind of thinking about these things as avenues for this, this sermon. But then I went on to think about it a little more and I thought about relationships I have, loving relationships I have, and I love Emma, my wife. I thought she was going to be here, so I wasn't maybe going to mention that, but no, she's not. I can, I can say that. And I thought about this first love, this, this marriage, the kind of commitment that you have in a marriage, how also then so many marriages can break down, how they can lose their first love. And then when that happens, couples are encouraged to communicate, to spend time with one another, to go on date nights, to get to know each other afresh. And I thought that's all quite good stuff for this passage and how the Ephesian church needs to get back to their first love with, with, with Jesus. Then I also went on to think about other relationships I have, other loving relationships I have. I love my children. Here's Isaac. I really like this picture. I think I look a bit wrecked, to be honest, but I, I, really, I really like it of Isaac. I just love the way he's hugging into me. And... Isaac's still young, and the way he hugs me and sits with me and looks at me, he thinks I'm great. <laughs> we're, we're at first love with Isaac, and um, I'd like to bottle that because it's not going to be long until he realizes his dad's a bit of a disappointment, really. But <laughs> He will love me, but will he have that first love? So that's my perspective on first love songs and loving human relationships that I have and potentially both could be could tease those out into be quite good sermons possibly but I, I thought a bit more about it and, and, and I, 
I think that um, Jesus is, is talking about something completely different here. I think Jesus has so much more for the Ephesians, so much more for us. So let's see what the Bible says about first love. Well, John, who wrote Revelation, who have already said, knows quite a bit about this love. And John teaches a lot about love, so there's no better man to go to than, than him. And in his letter in 1 John, which is just back a few pages, John tells us that God is love. Chapter 4, verse 8. The very nature of God is love. And John teaches us one of the key things of that letter is that we are to reflect God's love in right behavior. And John tells us in 1 John that we can have this love, this first love, that the Ephesians have, have, have forsaken this first love for God and for others by abiding in him. 1 John 4 verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. I think God has been teaching me a lot recently about this. I know it's, it's kind of simple, it's, it's ABC Christianity, but as I've been preparing for this, and I think before I've been preparing for it, I think God has been preparing me. And I don't think it's a coincidence that I was apportioned this, this part of the preaching workshop series. Because I feel as if God's been telling me, okay, Stephen, it's all very well, you're doing all this stuff, but you still don't really get it. You need to get back, to draw on, to be in first love all of the time. And perhaps this is what God wants to say to Windsor. A seemingly healthy church, both sound in doctrine and active in service, that we need to get back to this first love. And as I have learned this, over recent weeks, what I've realized afresh is that this first love that God has for me, for us, is amazing. The love that God, God himself, who is by definition love, coming into us as we trust in him. If our love for God and our neighbor has faded, then perhaps the spirit within us has faded. And if that is the case, then all of our works are in vain. We love because he first loved us and he put his love in us. And this isn't new to the Ephesians either. The Ephesians knew about this first love. Paul had told them about it in his letter. He described not only this first love, but another facet of this overwhelming, amazing love, which is totally audacious and mind-melting. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, it goes on to say, in love it predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So he loved us in this way. He loved us with this first love before we were even created or before we were saved, before we were adopted. The Ephesians were also led by Timothy at a stage. And Paul wrote to Timothy about this facet of first love 
in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, where it reads, He saved us and called us because of his purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So before creation, he loved me like this. Before the ages, he had plans to put his love, his first love, into me, into us. And this first love is different to anything we know in terms of of human understanding, in terms of human relationships, in terms of a black-eyed peace song. This, to, to be able to fathom this love, to feel this love, is not natural. To know this love, to know this love for what it is, requires the experience of this love, which is the acting of the love itself. So I want to ask you tonight, do you want to be loved like this? Or do you want to know this love again, afresh, anew? If our joyful fellowship with him has gone a little cold, then Jesus has words for us in Revelation 2. In verse 5, it reads, remember. We have to remember the height from which you've fallen. And that means we must reflect on a time we had when we had a closeness with Jesus, with a closeness with him in our hearts when we were filled with the Spirit. And then we must repent. To repent is to blame and and shame ourselves, to humbly confess our sins before God. And if you're following the text, just as in verse 5, after the word repent, there is nothing but a comma separating Repenting and and then doing the works that you did at first, the works of first love, the fruits of salvation, as Philippians 1 speaks about, the good deeds that are produced in our lives as a result of Jesus Christ. So if we truly repent, we will be renewed and we will once again have his first love. And there's nothing but a comma separating those things. There's no extra things needed. But if we do not remember and repent, he will remove our lampstand from its place, meaning he will put an end to our ministry. He will possibly scatter our church. A church without first love, a church without his love, without him, is of no use to Christ. I suppose if we think about it, how can we have a ministry if he is not in us? if we are not living out his first love. But this doesn't quite square with our human frailties and our weaknesses and our sinfulness of not being able to keep abiding in him. But every moment we are not in him is a sin, and that sin is of the devil, and it's something else God needs to redeem in our lives as we hand it over to him. This he does gladly, because that is why he came. Last Sunday morning, in Helen Warnock's sermon on the prodigal son, a comment she made really struck me, where she said, the father is the star of the story. It's not about the prodigal, it's about the father. It's not, it's not about us, it's about him. It's not about our hard work that the Ephesians are commanded for. It's not about 
a sound doctrine that the Ephesians are commended for. As Christians, we have his spirit. And if our joyful fellowship with him has gone cold, we need to remember and repent. This is clear. But in doing so, we will again have his nature. And he is love. And we need to get back to a focus on him. Worship of him. We need to get back to this first love. But how do we, how do we do that? How do we practice that? This remaining in him as our source of love, our source of life. Do we practice listening as well as talking to him? Do we give God time and space to speak to us from his word? Do we practice being open to his leading? Do we worship? How many times this week, like John, will you be in a state of worship? Of spiritual openness, ready to receive his revelation? And will we this week allow Jesus to lead us into situations where he can be that love that someone, maybe someone very close to us, needs as it flows from us? So let's finish the, the, the passage. Verse 6. Notice how Jesus encourages them after the rebuke. In love he commands them for hating the works of the Nicolaitans, which is a teaching marked by deception and lives marked by immorality. Notice also in verse 6 how he hates the works, not the people. Verse 7. Notice how the spirit of Jesus is now speaking to all the churches. If we conquer, we shall receive the right to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. So promise is held out to the conqueror or overcomer in some of the translations, the true believer. The true believer whose genuine faith will be shown by repenting every time they realize they have slipped from this first love. The conqueror proves the reality of their salvation. Paradise is a name for heaven. And by eating from the tree of life, we shall receive eternal life. We know about this tree from Genesis 2, verse 9. And the tree of life is also spoken about in Revelation 22, verse 2, where it's a sign of abundance, of health, spiritual healing. So if you understand what Jesus is saying to the Ephesian church, what Jesus is saying to Windsor, What Jesus is saying in this meal to you. And if you do want to be loved anew, or for the first time, loved like this, with this first love, then yield to this love which is already at work in you and embrace its fullest embodiment, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Messiah. To get back to this first love, remember, repent, and practice the art of abiding. And to be loved like this for the first time, Romans 10 verse 9 says, For if you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you will find that you have been loved with this first love, this great love from all eternity and to all eternity.